WMRA News. I'm Bob Levicky. A new State Department program brings two refugee students to JMU. A new restorative justice program in Albemarle County is gaining steam. And in the General Assembly, bills advance to ban assault-style weapons and provide more funds for the Brown v. Board Scholarship. But efforts to quiet those noisy leaf blowers has run out of gas. This is the WMRA Daily for Thursday, February 8th. administered by the U.S. State Department will help two refugee students enroll at James Madison University in the fall, WMRA's Randy B. Hagee reports. The program is called Welcome Corps on Campus, and JMU professor Christy Kilby explained that it will bring two students to Harrisonburg from a refugee camp in Kenya. We saw this opportunity not just as a way to recruit new students to campus who we otherwise may not get to have. We're very skilled and talented and ambitious and courageous people, but it's also a chance for us to start learning more and participating more robustly in solutions to displacement. These students will be part of the program's first cohort, arriving at college campuses across the country in time for the fall semester. Faculty and staff volunteers at JMU will provide the services normally offered by resettlement agencies, such as filling out government paperwork and teaching them how to navigate daily life in the U.S. We're going to be providing household items that they need for their dorms, clothing, computers, all of the kind of academic services that they'll need to plug into, peer students to mentor them and introduce them to cultural life here, teaching them how to use the bus in Harrisonburg, where to buy groceries. We want to be there to support our students through this really challenging cultural adjustment period. The university's African, African American, and Diaspora Studies Center will also help support the students. Kilby said funding for the program came from a State Department grant and donors among the JMU community. For WMRA News, I'm Randy B. Hagee. You can learn more about the program at WMRA.org or on the app. Full disclosure, WMRA's operating license is held by JMU's Board of Visitors and JMU underwrites programming on WMRA. A Stewart's Draft high school student has been charged with two counts of assault after a threat at the school on Tuesday. The newsleader reports that another student reported overhearing the verbal threat and the Augusta County Sheriff's Office and Augusta County Public Schools officials investigated. The student was charged on Wednesday. Two years after its inception, a criminal diversion program in the Albemarle County and Charlottesville court systems is building healing after people have been wronged or hurt. Randy has that story. In January of 2022, a pilot program of restorative justice began. In criminal cases where there was specific harm done by one person to another, if the victim, offender, prosecutor, and defense attorney all agreed, the case could be diverted out of the courts to a restorative justice initiative. There are way more human beings out there than you'd expect who just want to sit with the person who harmed them and to ask the hard questions. Why did you choose me? You know, was it anything that I did? Aaron Campbell is the co-director of Central Virginia Community Justice, the organization that formed to conduct these restorative justice processes. And they want to tell this person exactly how it impacted them. And then sometimes they want to offer them compassion and creative solutions. 
One recent case modeled what those creative solutions can look like. It all began last February, when Albemarle County native Jesse Morris, a stonemason and construction worker, was driving down Buffalo River Road in Earliesville. It was getting late. I wanted to make sure Battery Plus store was still open, and I was typing in a GPS on this little straightaway. And He didn't see Doug Ford on the shoulder of the road, where the immigration attorney was roller skiing, a sport similar to cross-country skiing, but with wheels on the end of each ski. And I heard it, and it was kind of like, this is a dead straightaway, so he's going to see me. There's no oncoming traffic, and the next thing I know, I'm in the ditch. At first, Morris thought, I hit a deer. And then uh, when I realized what happened, it was, I kind of like, I panicked before I thought about my action. I was feeling it was intentional. He sped away. Several drivers and bystanders stopped to help Ford, who had sustained injuries on... Basically, my whole left side, from my ankle, two rib fractures, an elbow fracture, and a multiple fracture of the scapula. I came back to the house, and I was praying for him, and I just, I wanted to go back, but I didn't know how to approach it, you know, how to how to go back. And plus, I got my kids 50-50, so I was thinking that my, my ex was probably going to get full custody because of all that done happened. Morris laid low, worried about losing custody of his 11-year-old daughter and 9-year-old son. Ford underwent surgery on his elbow and took about a month to be able to walk again. Law enforcement worked for weeks to track down the blue and white pickup truck that had fled the scene and finally found Morris through an anonymous tip. He was charged with a felony hit and run and two misdemeanors. But Ford wanted this case to have a broader impact on public safety than would come from just sending him to jail. Morris agreed to do a restorative justice process. He hoped that, in addition to preserving his custody arrangement, he could also keep his firearm rights for deer hunting. He met with the community justice facilitators and prepared to sit down with Ford. Yeah, I was definitely nervous. It kind of struck me how nice he actually is. So, uh, you know, I, most people wouldn't respond the way he did. <laughs> I told him, I said, hold on, so I wish we would have met uh, another way instead of going through all this. Fritz Hudson was one of their facilitators. He said both parties have to learn to talk to one another with empathy in this kind of process. First, we get to know them, and we do that separately by talking with each of them in some depth, sometimes getting to know their family, their larger community and friends, and then finally getting them together and then they'll hash out what could be done to prepare the harm and prevent it from happening. Ford said his feelings about the hit and run had changed when he found out it had been an accident. I don't know. It wasn't that big a deal. I'd worked with physicians for human rights, and I participated in exhumations of mass graves of genocide in Bosnia. So I've seen real dark, evil, bad stuff, and it just became pretty apparent before we were in the room together that it wasn't intentional. You know, it was a mistake. So how do we move on from there? They came to an agreement. Morris would write a letter detailing what he did and the dangers of distracted driving and give 25 public presentations. So far, he has talks scheduled at a church and driver's ed classes. The prosecutors let Morris plead guilty to one misdemeanor and have his jail sentence suspended. Part of the party's agreement was this truth-telling component. Shannon Neal is an assistant Commonwealth attorney for Albemarle County. She studied restorative justice before becoming a lawyer and helped launch this program. In the past two years, nearly 40 cases have been diverted to the program, from assault and battery to caretaker embezzlement. Neal said the program has benefited both victims and public safety. Both in terms of the harmed party having an experience where they feel heard and included and understand what happened in a way that they feel safer. 
the person who caused harm not only learns to take responsibility for what they did, but I think they also learn to take responsibility for what they do next. Both the prosecutor's office and Central Virginia Community Justice want to see more cases go through this process with the hope that everyone involved, the person harmed, the person responsible, and the community at large, emerge in some way restored. For WMRA News, I'm Randy B. Hagee. You'll find links to more information about the program at WMRA.org and on the app. All right, now to General Assembly news. A pair of bills aiming to make it harder to get an abortion in Virginia were turned back by a House committee late Wednesday evening. Virginia Public Radio's Brad Kuttner has more from Richmond. The House Court Subcommittee meeting opened with two bills, one that would ban almost all abortions and another that would ban the practice based on race. Today we present a bill that could save tens of thousands of lives this year and millions of lives over the course of a generation. That's Bedford area Republican delegate Tim Griffin. His bill would ban abortions except to say the life of the mother. Delegate Philip Scott, whose district includes parts of the Fredericksburg area, would ban the use of race when deciding to terminate a pregnancy. But Democrats on the committee disagreed with both bills. Among critics was Delegate Vivian Watts, who first joined the House of Delegates in 1996. She described her daughter-in-law's struggle to get pregnant and questioned the impact Griffin's ban would have on in vitro fertilization and other non-traditional pregnancy methods. I've lived a long life with a lot of pregnancies, with a lot of people that I love, and all kinds of ways to become parents, and it's not because you choose to. It's because you're lucky enough that everything works properly. Griffin's near-total ban was voted down unanimously, with three Republicans joining Democrats. And while those same three Republicans voted in favor of Scott's bill, it still failed under the Democratic majority. Both chambers of the General Assembly have passed a ban on assault-style weapons, also with Virginia Public Radio, Michael Pope reports. On the campaign trail, Democrats said that if they won control of the General Assembly, they would send legislation banning assault weapons to the governor. Now they're following through. Both the House and the Senate have passed an assault weapons ban on a party-line vote. Senator John McGuire is a Republican from Goochland County. Most of these crimes are being committed by handguns illegally, not what you guys call assault guns, which is, by the way, a misnomer. It's a semi-automatic rifle. I suppose if I hit you in the head with a hammer, you would call it an assault hammer. It's a semi-automatic weapon. Senator Cree Deeds is a Democrat from Charlottesville who says he rejects the idea that an assault weapon is needed for protection. A shotgun is liable to cause more noise and do more damage and is easier to control than an assault-style weapon that you lose control of once you pull the trigger. Who knows what you shoot up? Who knows how many of your own family members you hurt? I think there are other ways to protect one's property than with an assault weapon. The governor has not yet said if he plans on vetoing the bill, but Republican Senator Bill Stanley of Franklin County predicted on the Senate floor that he expects Youngkin to use his veto pen on the bill. Both Republicans and Democrats are looking to increase funding for a scholarship fund that benefits the descendants of black students harmed by the state's massive resistance to school integration. Brad Kuttner spoke with those involved in what's known as the Brown v. Board Scholarship. In the 1950s and 60s, 
Virginia shuttered its public school system rather than allow black children to learn alongside white children. In an effort to repair some of that damage, in 2005, lawmakers set up a state-funded scholarship to support those directly impacted. As they aged out of the education programs, the fund was expanded to include their descendants, but adequate money was not included in that update. To fix that problem this year, Republican Delegate Terry Kilgore submitted a budget amendment that would see the program get $5 million over the next two years. It's been underfunded the last four five years and you know we really need to, if we're going to have the scholarship fund we really need to step forward as a as a general assembly and fund it. Democratic Senator Cree Deeds has a matching budget amendment in the Senate. He said he hoped it would easily pass to address the Commonwealth's troubled past. A lot of people recognize that we have these wrongs to right. We, we've got a lot of work to do. And folks on the commission that runs the scholarship are glad to hear about the funding as well. Prince William area delegate Candy Munden King was appointed alongside her term in the House. She hopes more descendants apply this year. This is an important uh, opportunity to link them to their own history and heritage of their grandparents, aunts and uncles. While a $5 million request may be a drop in the state's $80 billion budget, the fate of the new funding request won't be known until the budget is released towards the end of session. Some local governments in Virginia were hoping to adopt new rules on noisy leaf blowers, but as Michael Pope reports, that effort has run out of gas this year. Gas-powered leaf blowers are loud. They also pollute, and many local governments in Virginia were hoping to create new rules cracking down on them. Delegate Rip Sullivan is a Democrat from Fairfax County who introduced a bill allowing local governments to take action. Putting my environmentalist hat on, uh, they're not good for the environment, they're particularly not good for the people using them uh, in close proximity to their own lungs. Um, and second, they are very loud, and when, particularly when people are living in close proximity to one another, they can be disruptive to a neighborhood or to a location. His bill was quietly defeated in the House last week. This week, a Senate panel rejected a similar bill introduced by freshman Senator Saddam Salim, a Democrat from Fairfax County. He says opposition to the bill came from rural areas where landscaping companies and golf course superintendents are worried about the bottom line. If we allow localities to do this, what if they place restrictions on businesses that are in the rural area that wouldn't be able to uh, make the changes? Both Sullivan and Salim say they'll be back again next year, adding that all they're really asking for is permission for local governments to take action for the benefit of their communities. Reporting from the Capitol in Richmond, I'm Michael Pope. If you've ever looked over the shoulder of your son or daughter as they scroll on their phones, you might have noticed how different their social media feeds are and how hard it seems to pull them away from the screen. One legislator is hoping to deal with that. Brad has that story. TikTok keeps sending you videos, all right, and they'll keep you going on the algorithmic feed forever. That's Henrico area Democratic Senator Skylar Van Volkenberg defending his bill, which would ban the use of so-called addictive feeds for minors on social media platforms. The senator said any parent or teacher, he's a teacher when he's not in the Senate, is familiar with how hard it is to get kids off their phones. He argued social media companies were designing their platforms to keep them there. His solution? Ban addictive feeds on children's accounts. 
But Elizabeth Rafferty with the Northern Virginia Technology Council was worried about the term addictive feed and how it would impact other algorithmic tools used by social media sites. I'm not certain that any technology company in Virginia can act lawfully with such unclear standards. But Van Volkenberg argued users provide plenty of input when they use a platform. And he said he's seen kids get dragged into endless video feeds that are teaching them bad habits like vaping. The way they're curating feeds for minors right now is atrocious. The bill passed nearly unanimously and is now headed to the Senate floor. Another bill from Van Volkenberg that limits social media companies' collection and use of data from minors also successfully passed. The mirror version of that bill in the House passed out of the chamber Wednesday. In Richmond, I'm Brad Kuttner. One in three teenagers will be in an abusive dating relationship before they graduate high school. It's according to the American Psychological Association. A tragic event in the New River Valley last year is leading school administrators, parents, and other community members to ask, what are the early warning signs that a teen may be in danger? How and when should adults step in to help? Virginia Public Radio's Roxy Todd reports. Last November, two teenagers in Blacksburg were found dead, a 17-year-old girl and her ex-boyfriend. Police aren't releasing many details around the deaths because both teenagers were minors. Heather Waldron, whose daughter Serenity was one of those who died, says her daughter was killed in a murder-suicide and was the victim of dating violence perpetrated by her ex-boyfriend. I hope that Serenity's death will initiate conversations that we can have in our community. We do not need to have such a stigma with domestic violence or mentally abusive, physically abusive relationships that our children are going through and that we can see that it can happen anywhere to anyone at any time. Some community members are asking if school administrators could have done more to prevent these deaths. If the protocols that are in place to help and protect students if they were followed. Wendy Eckenrod-Green is the parent of a Blacksburg High School student, and she started a petition asking for a third-party investigation of the circumstances related to the deaths. More than 1,300 people signed it. Last month, the Montgomery County School Board voted to move forward with the review. Eckenrod Green says she would like to see the school more clearly tell students and parents what to do if they suspect someone is in an abusive relationship. Being able to report a concern isn't really well laid out. She says she hopes the review will show if the school has clear policies for assessing threats and if those policies were followed in this case. Montgomery County School Superintendent Bernie Bragan would not comment on the details around this specific case. He says in general, they take any reported threat seriously, and the division has policies for how to include law enforcement, parents, and mental health experts in cases where it's deemed necessary. He added that he wants to see more training for staff and students around dating violence. And how do you identify when someone is acting inappropriately, not just with you, but with your friends. And for us as a division, I would like us to provide the training for students and staff to understand and identify that. Recently, he organized a presentation for 28 principals from across Montgomery County, led by Megan Brim, assistant professor of psychology at Virginia Tech. Dating violence peaks between the ages of 13 and 25. Brim told principals this is because teenagers' brains are still developing. Also, they're experiencing their first romantic relationships. Breakups are common and emotions are high. So they don't actually have the skills necessary to manage conflict from both a cognitive perspective, but also just a life experience perspective. 
She says early warning signs a teen may be in an abusive situation include changing how they dress or pulling away from hobbies or friends. One strategy she suggests for parents is when watching TV or movies with their child, keep an eye out for unhealthy relationship behavior. Pushing pause, just making some passive comment like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. That doesn't seem safe to me. What do you think? And that kind of creates a dialogue where you're not necessarily talking directly with your teen about their relationships and behaviors. She says if a teen does tell an adult they're concerned, grown-ups should listen. These moments are rare. Only 13% of teens experiencing dating violence will ever tell an adult. More often, they'll tell a friend. As a parent who lost her daughter, Heather Waldron says she hopes more young people can feel safe about telling a parent if they need help. Speak up. Tell someone. Don't be afraid because we're not going to look down on you. We're not going to think bad of you. This is not your fault. This is something that you could get help with. In Blacksburg, I'm Roxy Todd. Finally today, a Virginia bank that's trying to recover unpaid business loans to West Virginia Governor Jim Justice's family plans to auction land from a White Sulphur Springs sporting club at the governor's resort. The Associated Press reports that Carter Bank and Trust of Martinsville took out a legal notice in Tuesday's edition of the Charleston Gazette Mail newspaper. An auction including a Greenbrier Sporting Club lots is set to take place March 5th in Lewisburg, West Virginia. For WMRA News, I'm Bob Levicky. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy your Thursday. Thursday.